Let us pray. Holy God, speak to us your word of truth so that we may faithfully follow and joyfully serve our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Today's Gospel lesson is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, beginning with the 14th verse. Hear these words of Scripture. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? She replied, the head of John the baptizer. Immediately, she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother, and when his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How is this the word of the Lord? That is the question that jumps out of today's story. How is this tale of power and jealousy, and guilt, and fear, and lust, and ultimately murder, the word of the Lord. It's the question that every commentator I read this week asks of this text. It has no obvious takeaway. It has no heroes, save for John. It has a grisly ending, and as every commentator also pointed out, 
in a gospel that is otherwise concise and spare on details, a gospel that Caroline Lewis calls the Reader's Digest condensed version of the Jesus story. This story takes up a lot of narrative real estate only to put the worst of humanity on display. We enter today's text right where last week's left off, where Jesus had been teaching and healing to great acclaim in other towns and to resistance in his own hometown. And then he gave his 12 disciples a few instructions and sent them out into the world to carry out his mission. They called on all to repent and they healed people through the power that Jesus gave them. Now up until that time that Jesus began his ministry, John the Baptist had been the greatest prophet anyone had ever encountered. So when word spread about Jesus and all he was doing, Herod wondered if John had been raised from the dead. And this is where we cue the movie's flashback in time and roll the footage. Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, had broken Jewish law by marrying his brother's wife. John the Baptist pointed out this embarrassing lapse of judgment, and it infuriated Herod's wife. So she pressured him to get rid of John once and for all, if you know what I mean. And even though Herod actually kind of liked John, despite some of the puzzling things he said, and even though he didn't kill him then, as Herodias asked, Herod caved and threw John in prison and hoped that that would be enough to satisfy her anger. Well, soon it was Herod's birthday, and he threw a party for himself. And he wanted so desperately to impress his peers that he made his own daughter dance in front of them while they watched, maybe even ogled. And they all loved it so much that Herod offered her whatever she wanted. As one of my seminary friends once said, it must have been some dance. When at mom's urging, his daughter requested John's head right there in front of everyone who had just heard Herod's generous offer. He couldn't bear to say no, because the one thing you don't do when you are in power is look weak. Or before you know it, all of your loyal supporters will start abandoning you in droves. So in spite of his deep misgivings, in spite of his respect for John, Herod ordered the murder. A grim reminder to be careful what you asked for. And once again, personal expediency trumps justice. Now I wish I could say that the women in this story come off better, but not necessarily. It's hard to find sympathy for Herodias Herod's wife in this tale, for she too is a woman of status and wealth. Maybe she is as evil as Mark portrays her, for she also uses her own daughter but to exact revenge on the prophet. 
Or maybe, as Leah Scholl posits, maybe her one-dimensional character is simply a great literary tool. Or maybe it's all a classic case of blame the woman that pervaded not only ancient patriarchal societies, but still plays out today. We don't know the mind of Mark. All we have is the text before us. And then look at the dynamics between Herod and his daughter where there is a possible Me Too moment. The text is understated, but really, what kind of father asks his daughter to perform as a dancer at a party where a bunch of guys with titles are eating and drinking to their heart's content? And for all of us who say she should have refused to dance, if the Me Too movement has underscored anything, it's the very real possibility that she didn't even feel like she had that option. Note who had the power in that relationship. Herod as her father and as political leader and as agent of the Roman Empire. So now we can add potential abuse and exploitation to our already long litany of sin and brokenness in Herod's world. It is the worst of humanity indeed. And the story resonates so much with our world. Herod isn't the only one who abuses power on the national or international stage. The objectification and harassment of women certainly didn't end when all of the candles on Herod's birthday cake had been blown out. John the Baptist wasn't the only one detained indefinitely for no justifiable reason. And putting political expediency over execution of justice for the oppressed, let me count the ways. But Herod's story also resonates with the darker places that we personally inhabit. We may not abuse power on the world stage, but we are certainly susceptible in our own hierarchies of relationships. We are afraid of appearing weak or vulnerable. We hold grudges. We seek recognition for its own sake. We like status symbols. We sometimes say, stay silent when we hear someone use a racial slur. We don't want to make a scene. We fail to challenge the structures of society that privilege us over others. We fear the consequences of speaking up even if they're benign compared to the consequences that John the Baptist faced. There is a reason we pray the prayer of confession every Sunday. For Herod's story exposes the ugly truth that rears its head and demands to be reckoned with. And Herod's story interrupts the public narrative that we so carefully craft. And he does so with flashing lights and the noise of a blaring car alarm. Movies and TV series use flashbacks to shed light on their main character's motivations. 
And when a show flashes back in time, it can be disorienting. Do you ever experience that? You get so caught up in the storyline of that flashback that for a good long time, you lose track of the larger ongoing story. Well, in this flashback to Herod's deadly birthday bash, the gospel writer gives details that are so sensational, so tabloid worthy, that it is easy to lose track of the larger ongoing story that is summed up in the very first words of the gospel, which are the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the thing about flashbacks is that they make little sense without the stories wrapped around them. And wrapped around Herod's story is the story of God's love for the world made known to us in Jesus. Love, yes, for Herod's sordid, broken world and for ours. The Gospel of Mark tells us how Jesus sent out his 12 disciples into the world with the power to heal and the power to make whole. And then Mark follows up with this flashback which lays bare the reality of the world. It tells the truth about a world where power corrupts and where privilege seduces people into doing things they never thought they would do. And Jesus said, this is the world that I came to love, the disgusting and repulsive one, the one where humanity messes up time and again. And this is the world into which I'm sending my disciples with my power to heal. This is the world for which I will give up my own life. Now, I'm not sure I've ever seen a show or a movie that ends with the flashback. They always come back around to the other side, which is what this gospel does. On the other side of Herod's story is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And while many of us probably remember that one, with the change in religion in our society and with the rise of the so-called spiritual but not religious, we can no longer assume everyone knows that story. So allow me to briefly recap it for you. Jesus and his disciples spend all day teaching the crowds who can't get enough of what he has to say and will not leave. It gets late and there's no food. And the disciples find a boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. They take it, and as they pass the food out to folks, it multiplies so that there's enough for everyone. That feast is a far cry from the birthday banquet that Herod hosted. And Barbara Lundblad said that Mark wants us to hear the difference between Herod's banquet of death and Jesus' banquet of life. Mark's gospel is all about truth-telling. The human dilemma is tragic and impossible to face. And yet, 
Jesus comes again and again to change the story from evil to redemption, from emptiness to abundance, from death to life. I, like the rest of the world, have been captivated by the story of the 12 boys and their coach who were trapped in a cave in Thailand for over two weeks. And this past week, as the details behind their rescue have begun to emerge, it seems like I just can't get enough, and I just can't read enough about it. One detail from a story in the Washington Post particularly captured my attention. It was the point where the rescue of the first boy would commence. They had strung ropes throughout the maze of chambers in the cave. They had placed air tanks up and down the stretch of passageways. They'd put a wetsuit and an oxygen mask on the boy. And they'd given him some medication to calm him. And then the final step of preparation before the rescue divers would pull the boy through the murky water was to swaddle him in a flexible plastic stretcher, akin to a tortilla wrap, the story said, to confine his limbs and to protect him from the jagged walls. And then the diver kept the swaddled boy in a body-to-body clinch for as much of the swim as possible. Friends, let us be swaddled in God's overarching story of grace and healing, even as we dare to encounter the world as it is, the murky and complicated and horribly broken world into which Jesus has sent us. Let us breathe in the rich oxygen of God's story. Let it saturate every ounce of our being that we may confront the truths of our lives and find courage to confront injustice in all of its guises. And let us cling to Jesus and his story every moment of the journey. Amen.